Okay, so heaven. So we will look at heaven both from a spiritual perspective in terms of the soul and also in terms of the body. But we will start with the soul because if you think about it, if you were to die tonight and go to heaven, just your soul would be in heaven. Your body would remain in the grave until the second coming of Christ. So you would not yet have the glories of heaven in regard to your body. But you would have the glories of heaven in regard to your soul. I will warn you, one of the things you learn very, very quickly when you are studying both philosophy and theology is the fact that we often think about things extremely materialistically. And the reason we do that is because we are material beings. And so we always try and relate everything to the material. And that's fine because that's the way we have to think. But it does get us in trouble when we're dealing with God. It gets us in trouble when we're dealing with abstract things. So we often think of heaven as like enjoying a nice steak. That would actually be like an insult to God. It's much better than that. Um, So this would be the way in which we should think of heaven, again, sort of abstracting from the material. And so primarily, the primary thing of heaven, the primary joy of heaven is the vision of God. And you see this throughout sacred scripture. So I have the classic verse first from 1 John. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So you may not have recognized this, but you don't see God in this life, right? You know him through faith. You know him through the the material world. In heaven, you're finally going to get to see God face to face. And this is called, by the medievals, the Lumen Gloria. And they always like to quote that psalm, in your light we shall see light. So, our Lord sort of hints at this as well in John 17, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you whom you sent. So, in the classical sense, the mechanics, as far as we know of what this would be like, is as follows. Your mind naturally likes truth. That's why you like to learn things. My little sister, she loves infectious disease pharmacy, and she loves learning more about infectious disease and bacteria and all these weird things, right? She would also say, I'm weird, because I like to learn theology. But all of us, as Aristotle said, we all have this desire to know. So our intellects desire truth. So what happens then when you have the beatific vision? Because only God can understand God. God is an infinite being and we have finite minds. So for our mind to know God, it has to be elevated above its nature. It's elevated by that grace called the Lumen Gloria. So what God does is he allows your mind, your intellect, to know him. And because God is infinite truth, Your intellect is delighted by that. You know, you think of all the other fields of study. We always have to know more and more and more, and then we eventually get tired and we find new hobbies and all of that. But with God, you are presented with infinite truth. And by knowing God, you know all things. And so when your mind can know God, your mind rejoices in that. So you know God has the first truth face to face. Our wills naturally, desire good things, if you think of it. 
And it desires a good thing insofar as you know it. So I always ask the school kids, how do you know that you like cake? And they all say, they always come up with all these answers and they, they never get like the basic answer, which is because you know it tastes good because you've had cake. So our wills tend towards the good as we know it. And so when your mind knows God, who is infinitely good, your mind is going to judge him as infinitely good and your will is going to desire him. And in heaven, your will can latch on to the infinite good of God. So to use our material example, it'd be like a sunset that never ends, right? Or whatever delights you have in this world, if you, everything in this world is finite. And so we eventually get tired of it. It's why, you know, you love having steak, but if you've had it 40 days in a row, eventually you'd be like, okay, you know, maybe pizza sounds good today. That's because a steak's a finite good. It's a very finite good, right? The finest is a finite good, some may say, but it's still a finite good. With God, you have this infinite good. So your will is never exhausted of him. You just delight in him, you know him, your intellect grasps onto him, your will grasps onto him, and you can delight in that infinite goodness for all eternity. So I think when you think about heaven, what you want to think about are some of what the philosophers call transcendentals. Right? Don't get caught in sort of our base desires. Think of the things that humans desire in this transcendental level. Level. It's like truth, goodness, beauty. With the vision of God, you're going to have all of that. Because God is infinitely tr- infinite truth. He's truth itself. He is infinitely good. He's goodness itself. He's infinitely beautiful. So all of those things which we desire you're going to have in the vision of God. So, again, we have to imagine it in material ways because we cannot imagine it as it is. So it's like when you walk into a cathedral, that feeling of, like, wonder and awe at the beauty of it, it's like that times infinity for all eternity. So your intellect will know God. Your will will grasp onto the infinite goodness of God. And you will delight in that. And Paul, who would probably say that, you know, my desire to describe heaven is hopeless, says, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the man, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Again, everything on this earth is finite, finite truth, finite beauty, finite good. God is infinite. So any joy, any happiness which we have on earth will be transcended simply by the vision of God. I think it's also important to mention what is called the principle of proportionate causality, which is a fancy way of saying every good in the world comes from God. And God, whatever good you see in a dog or a human or a sunset, God has that good in an infinite manner. And so any good which we could delight in in earth, God has that in its infinite and eminent manner. So again, I has not seen nor ear heard. A couple other facets of this is Revelation 21.4 points out that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So there will be no sadness in heaven. God is infinitely perfect, infinitely happy in himself. And now you will partake in that divine life of infinite happiness. It also says death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things has passed away. So one of the things you will delight in in heaven is that all of the joys which you have, you will possess for all eternity. You know, 
whenever we have something nice on earth, we think to ourselves, well, someday we will lose it. Well, maybe we don't always think that, but, or I'm just a cynic. But we, we could think that, right? Even the greatest joy you have in your life, like, well, someday this will end. That will not be the case in heaven. You'll have every joy which you could possibly desire, and it will never end. You will be locked into it. So those are like the spiritual joys of heaven, the ones which the soul will have. Notice that the powers of the soul, the intellect and the will are being fulfilled. At the second coming of Christ, I should also just mention heaven, the eternity of heaven, just as hell is eternal, heaven is eternal as well. So at the second coming of Christ, not only will our souls partake in heavenly glory, but our bodies will as well. And so there's a couple key points of this. One is that we will have the same body which we have now, but it will be glorified. So there's this great quote in Maccabees there at the bottom. I got these body parts from heaven. Because of his laws, I disdain them. And from him, I hope to get them back again, the same body. And Paul says, for this perishable body must put on imperishable you know the word and this mortal body must put on immortality all right so it's the same body and now thomas saint thomas when he's talking about this he points out and he didn't have all the scientific knowledge we did but he recognizes that you know you're constantly like turning over cells throughout your life so obviously every cell which was part of your body is not going to be part of your glorified body otherwise you'd be like 400 feet tall and all of this what they say essentially is your body is going to be it's going to be the same body substantially so it's not going to be like you're not going to have my body I'm not going to have your body I'm not going to have every cell that I ever had on this earth but it's going to be enough that it is my body and my soul which is used to my body will recognize it as my body a couple other things about the glorified body one is that it will be like Christ this is the main theme Ultimately, I always point this out. The end game of all that we do in the spiritual life is conformity to Christ. Because the end game of all things is conformity to Christ. So we try and conform our lives to Christ on this earth so that we can be conformed to Christ. In heaven, in Philippians, Paul, he says, He, God, will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory, Christ by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. So, when you read Acts and you read the ends of the gospel, when you see Christ, who has a glorified body, the medievals pointed out that there are four characteristics of Christ. And they are are called agility, impassibility, subtlety, and clarity. And... Clarity is the easy one. Christ's glorified body is magnificent, right? It shines in brilliance. And you have that great verse from the Gospel of Matthew. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. So you'll have glory. You'll have brilliance to your body. The next one is impassibility. This is the one that you should rejoice in the most from impatior, which means you will no longer suffer. So your body... Because it is glorified, you're not going to have arthritis, you're not going to have your back pain, you're not going to have all the other things that you probably complain about right now, right? You will not suffer. This is part of the joys of heaven, right? He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And then agility and subtlety are the ways in which Christ moves among his disciples. 
So like he passes through locked doors. You know, in Acts it talks about how the doors were locked. And Christ is able to enter into their midst. Our bodies will partake in that. So I think the, the way to always think about it is we'll have material bodies, but it'll be like glorified matter. And so it'll, it'll be pretty impressive. So body glorified like Christ, the soul seeing God face to face, infinite truth, infinite goodness, infinite beauty. Those are sort of the two essences of the soul and the body being glorified. A couple other things. One is... In heaven, there is a degree of sameness and there is a degree of difference, right? You would expect nothing else, right? So the sameness, you get this from the parable of the landowner. Like in Matthew 20, all the wages get the same, or all the laborers get the same wages. What is the same for all of us in heaven is the vision of God. It's the same God and we all get to see God face to face. However... There is a difference because sacred scripture always insists that God repays everyone according to their work. Paul talks about the one who sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And the one who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. The Lord says, I will repay repay according to everyone's work. So how that's usually understood is the vision of God. We all have the vision of God. However... Our ability to penetrate into the mystery of God, our ability to comprehend that vision of God is different depending on our works. So, for example, let's say you're sitting in a classroom and somebody is teaching you math. Math is always a good topic because some of us are probably good at it, some of us are bad at it. The lesson could be the same for everyone. It's the same exact words of the teacher. However, the students who are better at math, they're able to understand the lesson more fully. They are able to see the ramifications of the teaching more deeply. It's the same lesson, but some penetrate the mystery more deeply. So that's what it's gonna be in heaven. The higher your state of glory is in heaven, the deeper you're gonna see, understand, comprehend the mystery of God. Because it's an infinite mystery. And so some people will only enter a little bit into the mystery of God. Some people will enter more fully. So like Our Lady, her vision of God is more full than any of ours will be. If you're wondering, well, how do I get more of the vision of God? Thomas is very clear on this. Thomas when he talks about it. Because God is love, the more that you love on earth, the more you are conformed to God. And so the more you will understand him in the beatific vision. So the more you love, the more glory you will have in heaven because you've become like God. Gary Runge and some of the people of my ilk, we would say it's conformity to Christ, which gets you to the same point. The more you are conformed to Christ, the more you will be conformed to his glory. Christ perfectly, right, has, because he's God. He has this perfect beatific vision. Um, <clears throat> The more we are conformed to Christ, the more we will partake in that. So again, the vision is the same for all of us, but it's just your capacity to penetrate, to understand, to glorify, and glory in that vision will be different based upon your merits, based upon how much you love or how much you are conformed to Christ. There is here at the bottom C, 
this little speculative thing. This is not at all church teaching. Well, it sort of is. It was common in the medievals and it fell out of favor, but I always thought it was cool. So I gave it to you. The medievals thought there were three special crowns because if you look at the uh, letter of John, we have three like arch enemies. We have the flesh, the world, and Satan. And so the medievals liked this idea that there would be three special crowns for those who conquer those three arch enemies in profound ways. So the first were, were for virgins, those who conquered the flesh, and they always got it from Revelation 14.4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. These follow the lamb wherever he goes. They have been redeemed from humankind as firstfruits for God and the lamb. The second special crown was for martyrs, because martyrs have conquered the world. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And then the final crown was for, I think I mentioned confessors or doctors, essentially those who teach the faith. And the idea was they have conquered Satan, the father of lies with their wisdom. And they would always quote Daniel, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky and those who lead many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. So it's just a medieval tidbit, those three special crowns. If nothing else, it reminds you of what your enemies are that you must overcome in this world. A couple other things that I marked as ancillary. So although the vision of God will be your primary joy in heaven, in your glorified body, you will have an ancillary joy insofar as you will be with the saints, you will be with the angels, right? So our, all of our beloved saints, Therese, Teresa, St. Anthony of Padua, St. Michael the Archangel, all of them, we will be with them. And so that, that'll bring us joy as well. I also made the point that in certain sacraments, you get a mark on your soul. So in baptism, confirmation, and ordinations, you get a mark on your soul. Those marks... They conform you to Christ in special ways, and so they will also sort of be part of your glory in heaven. So it's why if a child is dying, not only is the priest instructed to baptize them, he's also instructed to confirm them because that will add to their glory in heaven. So I'm always reminded, it was one of our last classes in seminary, and Father Justin Kazuski, who was teaching us a class on the Eucharist, he was telling us, essentially how important our priesthood was. And he said, guys, he said, just remember, the mark which you get on the day of your ordination, if you are damned and you are in hell, the demons will mock you for it. But if you are in heaven, it will be for your glory. So choose wisely how you live your priesthood. So you guys all baptized, been confirmed. I currently have four marks, baptism, confirmation, diaconate, priesthood. I don't want the fifth mark, the episcopacy that comes with too many other pains, I think. So they always say, they always joke, so many guys who want to be bishops, they should, they should be given that honor. <laughs> but again, your baptismal mark, your confirmation mark, all that conforms you to Christ in a profound way. So it will glorify you. All right, the final thing, because I know somebody's going to ask, your dog, is it with you in heaven? I had to answer this. All right. So <laughs> this is a tough question because I know people love their animals. I can tell you this much. You will not care. <laughs> if, you're, 
Because whatever joy your dog gives you, you will find that joy in an infinite manner in God. The traditional answer, especially among St. Thomas and his followers, would be no. Your, the dog would not be with you in heaven. And he had philosophical reasons for thinking this. But theologically, the main point was that, you know, in heaven, um, your primary thing is the vision of God and the saints. And material things, the purpose of material things, is to help you get to heaven. It's, you know, we eat so that we have energy so we can pray and do good works, etc. You know, you look at the sun and the moon, it's supposed to remind you of the glory of God so that you praise and glorify him. And so if material things, if their purpose is to help us get to heaven, once you've gotten to heaven, then they have done their duty. Thomas did offer the possibility of, like, the stars being in heaven um, because he thought they glorified God. So there are some who try and say, well, you know, a dog a lion, a tiger, all of those things can glorify God in some way. So maybe they are with us. Um, you know, Isaiah talks about the lion and the lamb lying down. That's, I always figured that was just allegory, that there will be perfect peace in heaven. Um, Father Strand pointed out that if your dog is in heaven, does that mean no, there's going to be mice and rats and mosquitoes in heaven as well? <laughs> I probably should have told him I was going to quote him, but that's all right. It's a fair point. I will say this. You will not need your dog in heaven to be perfectly happy. So whether or not your dog is there, I'll just, I'll, I'll leave that one out and say, you will be perfectly and happy, perfectly happy in heaven. And whatever joy you would have from any material thing, you will have in God to the infinite. And so if you need your dog to be happy in heaven, then your dog will be there. If you do not, then it may not be there and you will be okay with that. And that leads me to my second point. This, is, this one is even, I think, more shocking to people when, than whether or not your dog is in heaven. It's the idea of what if your friends and family members are not in heaven? That, you know, I have great angst over all of you, but my friends and my family as well in trying to get them to, into heaven. And a priest can never preach to his family. They just know him too well. And so... We just have a lot of angst over our families and we, we worry about them a lot. What'll happen in heaven again? And our Lord's very clear about this in the gospel when he talks about whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy than me. Whoever loves mother and father more than me is not worthy than me. In heaven, when you have the beatific vision, let's say, you know, let's say person X, your cousin who, who you really like is, is, didn't make it. You will see in God all the goodness and all the blessings which God offered to your cousin. You will love God more than your cousin, because if you didn't love God more than your cousin, you wouldn't have the beatific vision. You will see the profound malice of your cousin rejecting the grace of God, and you will see the, justi the justice of God in condemning him, and you will actually rejoice in that, because you will understand it fully, and you'll say, no, he rejected God, God did everything he could, and even this act of justice of God glorifies God. So I always say that it is true, when, when the sentence of condemnation is made upon the damned, the saints, the angels, they will actually rejoice, because they will see it as just, they will see it as a manifestation of God, and they will love God more and more. And as I was driving over, I was trying to think of like a material example of this, and the closest thing I can get to is I have seen certain mothers when their child was, let's say, killed by somebody, 
and they forgive their child's killer, some of them, right? Profound and in great charity and great humility. They will forgive the one who harmed their child. But when the sentence is passed upon their child's killer, they still have a sense of joy and relief because they recognize justice has been served. And so even though they have forgiven them, even though they don't hold a grudge, they still say, no, this, this is a good thing that this happened. That's like the closest example from the world I could think of of this. But again, we know there will be no sadness in heaven, so you're not going to mourn those who are not there. And I think the reason is because you love God more than anything else. Okay. That is what I wanted to cover. I will answer questions from here because I think if I stand in front of that speaker, there's going to be feedback. So you might have to yell your question loudly. Does anyone have questions? Complaints that I said your dog might not be in heaven. It does. Um, you have the eagle because that's a sign of John. You have a lamb because that's a sign of John the Baptist. So maybe you can have an eagle in heaven or a lamb. I don't see a dog up there. Though. Is there a dog? Or a cat. No mosquitoes in heaven for sure. Sorry for those who like mosquitoes. Any other questions? Yes. So it's a twofold question, right? One is, can you pray somebody to heaven? And two, what if they, they don't repent? Again, if, let's say Helena, um, St. Helena had prayed, um, or St. Monica, excuse me, St. Monica had prayed for St. Augustine, and he had not turned around. Remember that the perfection of the spiritual life, um, which is necessary for heaven, is perfect conformity to the will of God. And so ultimately, when we pray for somebody, with every fiber of our being, we pray that they receive the grace of God and they be conformed to God and they be saved. But at the end of the day, we're, we're going to conform our wills to God. And so if St. Monica had spent her whole life praying for St. Augustine and Augustine had not converted, when Monica appeared before the, the judgment seat of God, or no, when Monica had the beatific vision, she would have seen how even Augustine not turning away was part of divine wisdom, divine justice, divine mercy. And she would not have been sad in that. She would have been totally content with the beatific vision. Because again, she loved God more than Augustine. The second thing, can you pray someone to heaven? Yes and no. Ultimately, the only thing that can convert people is the grace of God. So you can plead God for grace, and the saints do that and they fast, and they pray, and they have masses offered. But only the grace of God can convert someone, and someone can only be converted if their will receives the grace of God. And this is something we just have to accept. I know it's hard, and I have a hard time doing this as a priest. I have to do the best I can. I have to try and be as persuasive as I can. I have to make myself available for the sacraments. I have to fast and pray and plead and do my part as a priest. But at the end of the day, every soul which is entrusted to me, I ultimately hand over to God. And he will do with them as he wishes. And if someone stays resistant to, to God and to his grace, that's an act of profound evil. And divine justice will be served in that regard. And I understand that. And that doesn't mean I'm happy about it now, but I do know that in the beatific vision, I will understand it and it will not cause me pain.
But you should keep praying for people. Because what do we know? We know that every moment in your life, God offers you the grace to repent. And so God does not give up on any soul as long as there is breath in their lungs. And so we can't give up on souls either. And we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray. And it's like our Lord with Judas. You know, he's always trying to get Judas, but he knows Judas is going to turn away from him. And he knows Judas is going to despair. I mean, that's the sin of Judas that got him damned was not handing over Christ, actually. All the early Christians recognize this. The sin that got Judas damned was his despair. They always compare him to Peter. Both Peter and Judas denied the Lord, but Peter repented. Peter understood that the Lord could forgive his sin. Judas refused to repent and went into despair and killed himself instead of turning back to the mercy of God. You'll never want a soul to get into heaven more than God will either. Remember that. You haven't shed that much blood for him yet. Yet. Yes. Yes. So the question is sort of this, the identity of the soul and the relationship between body and soul in terms of identity. I won't go into all sort of the philosophical details of this, but um, essentially your soul holds your identity because your soul has your highest powers, which are the powers of your intellect and your will. So your soul, you will be self-conscious in the kingdom of heaven. Like you will know you are yourself because your intellect right now knows that you are yourself. You will know that you're in heaven because you will have the beatific vision. You will have all the joys. You will probably know where your body is because it's related to you. So you will still have your identity. You will still be you. But you're kind of an incomplete you because the human, the human person is a combination of body and soul. And so you're not fully human if you don't have your body. So your soul will want to be reunited with your body. But it will not be. It will have sort of this, what Thomas calls, a natural longing. And then at the last day when it is uh, once again reunited to your body then you'll be fully human but your soul does carry what we would call like your ego your your i-ness your self we like to talk about self-consciousness in the modern world but essentially your soul carries who you are and your soul has a relationship with your body because of what the human person is once your soul informs your body is what's called in philosophical language your body and soul have what's called a transcendental relationship and so your body and soul like have a natural tendency desire for one another so that's why it would be weird for like my soul to be in someone else's body it'd be like a bad kidney transplant but yes you you in the kingdom of heaven you will know who you are you will have all of your memories because your memories insofar are stored partially in your brain, insofar as their material, but they're also in your intellect. Um, that's as short an answer as I can give without giving like really heavy philosophy. It's a good question. When we talk about the face of God, are we talking about seeing Jesus? No, you're going to see God. Um, you're going to see the Trinity. You're going to see him and you're going to say, well, how is that possible? Because my eyes are material and I can only see material things. That's going to be part of that lumen gloria of God. He's going to elevate your senses, your intellect, your will, your eyes to be able to see him in this spiritualized way. So you will see all of God. This was a huge argument between the Greeks and the Latins in the Middle Ages. 
The Greeks didn't like this idea of seeing God face to face. They always tried to put some sort of like medium between the souls in heaven and God. And it's like, no, no, no. Any medium, as soon as it's created, it's going to be finite and it's infinitely short of God. You know, John's very clear. Sacred scripture is very clear. You have a direct, unmediated vision of God. And that can only be done by the power of God. Because God has to raise you across an infinite chasm because that's the distance between us and God. We begin to partake of that slightly in this world through faith. So if you think about it, faith gives you the capacity to know God in a supernatural way. That's a foretaste of heaven. So already the eyes of faith allow you to know the Trinity, allow you to know that even though that looks like bread, that is actually Jesus. That's a foretaste of heaven. You're beginning to see God in a supernatural way, and he's going to bring that to completion with the face-to-face vision. But you will see the Trinity. And if I was as eloquent as Garrett Gulagrunge, I would talk about how you would see the ineffable spiration of the Holy Spirit and this torrent of fire between the Father and the Son and all of these mechanics of Trinitarian relationships. You will get to see that. You will delight in that. Because it's pretty cool. It's a good question. Okay, so the question is relationships which are formed on here on earth, if they continue in heaven, you will know that you were married to somebody. You will know that you were married to X, Y, and Z. Um, our Lord's very clear that marriage is for this earth, right? Um, till death do us part. So like my relationship with my parents will still exist in heaven because they will always have given my mother will have always given birth to me, right? I will always carry the genes of my parents. However, and even on earth, this has to happen. Your relationship with God has to be even more primary than your relationships with your friends and with your family. You know, that's why there's all these stories like St. Alphonsus, when his father tells him not to become a priest, he does not have to honor his father in that regard because God is telling him to be a priest. And that trumps even his natural relationships. Um, So it reminds me of this argument my mother and I have, because parents, I don't know if you guys know this, you can bless your kids because you have temporal authority over them. And so after I got ordained, I told my mom she couldn't bless me anymore because now in the supernatural order, I have temporal authority over her and she didn't buy that. So I I think I'm right, (laughs) but that's all right. The supernatural and the natural, right? Any other questions? Yeah. Yeah. So I answered this last week, and I gave the two theories of limbo. And so the, the common medieval answer was the idea of limbo. And limbo, just to remind them, now it actually makes more sense, is you're in this state of purely natural happiness. So, like, imagine the world when you have no pain, no suffering, no sorrow. You're perfectly happy in this world. And imagine that you're also this great philosopher, so you know God in the natural order in this world. So you have no pain, you have no suffering, and you know God in the natural order. You don't have the beatific vision, but you're still happy. That was the medieval idea going all the way back, I think, to St. Augustine of Limbo. About 20 years ago, the International Theological Commission, it wasn't that they didn't like limbo, 
they just they expressed the church's hope that there may be a possibility for children who die in the womb to still reach the kingdom of heaven through maybe like the prayers of the church through the fact that i can offer funeral masses um for a child who dies in the womb through the faith of parents through the prayers of others there is this hope but ultimately what the church will say is we don't know because it has not been revealed to us and we only know what has been revealed to us well we know things naturally and but supernatural truths we only know them if they have been revealed to us and we know that god doesn't punish people for things that's not their fault so we take great hope in that we ultimately don't know we have to be content with mystery in theology you learn that very quickly good good anyone else yes Mm-hmm. So the question is, when Paul talks about going to sleep, what does that mean and what happens with our consciousness? So you, you will be conscious in, in your soul. And again, consciousness is sort of this vexing topic um, in philosophy nowadays. But your body will be asleep, but you are going to be conscious in heaven. So you will, your soul will know that it's in heaven. You will know you are in heaven. That's why the saints can appear to people already, right? The saints can pray for all of us as they do. The difference between Our Lady and us is Our Lady was assumed body and soul into heaven. So she has her body with her. The rest of us with our souls, we would go to heaven and you will be conscious there and you will, you will have your identity. The soul bears your identity. That's why it can be judged on behalf of you. And you will be able to pray for those still on earth because in the beatific vision, you're going to know all of these things. So when Paul talks about going to sleep, he means specifically the body lays in the grave until the second coming, but the soul then goes forth to heaven. So it's not like once you die, there's this period of blackness. No, your soul remains. That's one of the key ideas. Your soul will either go to purgatory, hell, or heaven, and you will know that you're in purgatory, hell, or heaven. You will have joy, in heaven or you will have suffering in purgatory or complete suffering in hell immediately following death it's just your body which lies asleep in the grave until it's risen again there's no gap yeah so there's two questions is does our work continue in heaven can we pray for those in heaven and can we pray for those um, can we pray for those on earth when we're in heaven and can we pray for those on earth while we're in purgatory in heaven, definitely. So the book of Revelation presents the prayers of the saints like incense in the sight of God, and they are pleasing. So yes, when you're in heaven, you can pray for your kids. And in fact, your prayer will have even more force in heaven than it does now, because you are perfected in charity and you are before the throne of God. So you will continue to pray. You will continue to be ministers of God's will in the kingdom of heaven. She's totally right. Your work will not end whether or not you can pray for those on earth while you're in purgatory was a disputed question in the middle ages i believe thomas said no and i'm guessing scotus said yes and i don't know their arguments off the top of my head my guess if i i'm I'm guessing the way thomas thought which is dangerous because he's way way smarter than i my guess is thomas would have said something along the lines of when you are in purgatory you are in a state of purification and not a state of perfection. And so you're like journeying on the way. And so you're sort of like not in that moment able to pray for those on earth. I'm guessing Scotus's rebuttal was something along the lines of, 
Well, when you're on Earth, you're also a Viator. You're also on the way, and you can pray for others. I could have totally just simplified their arguments and been wrong. That, if I had to guess, the route, the thought process of those two people who are way, way smarter and way, way holier than I am, guessing that would have been their general train of thought. Probably way more eloquent and sophisticated than I just gave it to you. But that's my best guess. So heaven, yes. Purgatory, disputed question. Yes. Yeah, is heaven a physical place? Um, yes, well, yes and no. Um, so heaven is a state. That's the thing to always remember, first and foremost. Heaven is the vision of God. It's like when people ask, where is hell? I'm like, that's totally the wrong question. Hell is the absence of God. So that's the first thing. Heaven is a state insofar as you have the beatific vision. What the medievals used to talk about, and it comes up in Dante, if I remember right, is what's called the Empyrean heaven, which is essentially like the heavenly realm, whatever that looks like. Because yes, you have two material bodies in heaven insofar as you have our Lord's body and you have our Lady's body. Now, does the glorified body take up space in the way that our bodies take up space? Absolutely not, right? Because it's going to be matter glorified. That's why our Lord can like pass through locked doors. So what that exactly looks like, we don't know. But there's going to be some capacity for having to include material bodies. That we have to be certain of. It's just going to be glorified. This got way more philosophical and metaphysical than I thought it would be. Yes, Gary? Well, souls that are in heaven function outside of time. Yes and no. It, because what's happening in heaven, right, is you're beginning to partake of the divine life. And God acts eternally and also in the world. So you're going to partake in that. So your, your prayer is, let's say you're before the kingdom, you're in the kingdom of God, you're before the throne of God. You partake in the eternal time, the eternal nature of God. But your prayers have an effect in time. So essentially what's happening is you're beginning to partake of eternity, not as fully as God does, but insofar as you're glorified. That's tricky, and I know that, doesn't, that didn't make the most sense, but that's essentially what it's gonna be. There's one other question that we should pray to Okay. Yeah, do you guys, you guys know the standard definition of eternity? Okay, that's, that's good. Um, I was, it is to have your entire existence at once. So, Dr. John Gallup, who was this famous philosophical um, philosophy professor at Sacred Heart, he best described eternity. You think of our time. Our time moves. Like, think of a number line that we're like ticking through, right? Hurtling through. Imagine a circle with a dot in the center of it. That dot is equally present to every point of that circle. That's eternity. God has his existence in this one grand moment. And that's what we will begin to partake in. Because God doesn't change. He doesn't have succession. He's like that point in the middle of the circle. That's why to God there is neither past nor future. It's just all equally present. He lives in what the medieval said, the eternal now. All right. Any more questions, you can shoot me an email. Let's pray evening prayer.